you all here after a break. Let's open with a word of prayer. But before I do that, um, just a little housekeeping uh, task. Um, my wife's sitting there. Uh, if you would, if you want a set of notes as we go through, marching through the Thursday nights, if you'd uh, donate five dollars to the cause to cover the paper and the copy, appreciate it. Um, tonight we're going to uh, do some review as well as next week, uh, because as I'll mention uh, in a few moments, we have a um, pretty complicated stuff to do this year. So, Father, we thank you that once again we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy because of our great high priest, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his accomplishment in finishing the salvation deliverance on the cross, that we can trust in that and in that alone for our salvation, that we can share the righteousness that is his, not ours, and that on that basis we can approach you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Um, just to get a running start on things, uh, remember that what we're trying to do this year is finish what we didn't do last year. And last year was going to be our last year of working through the framework. And what happened is, is that we get into the details of the church and so forth. And the New Testament period, which is not simple compared to a lot of the Old Testament material. So we had to go slow and we never got it finished. So this year, we're going to go back and pick that up and hopefully this year, we'll finish our job. So um, with that, let me uh, review where we've come and again remind everyone as to the method that we're using here on Thursday night uh, so that you don't confuse this with an exegetical uh, Bible uh, course. It's not exegetical Bible. It's not systematic theology. And it's not apologetics per se, but it's all three of them wrapped together into a framework. And just to review, the reason why I came up with this approach is my experience with college students who would grab pieces of the Bible as young people and then when they got in college have their faith totally smashed the first lecture. And it was because, in many ways, they were never taught properly in the first place. The Bible cannot be taught in isolation from everything else. And when you do that, you set up vulnerabilities in people so that either the Bible becomes compartmentalized, it's, quote, the religious thing, off to the sidelines, to be used from time to time when necessary, and has no connection whatever with normal everyday life. And then we wonder why no one can apply the Bible. And it's because it's taught that way. It's taught isolated from application uh, to the large picture of, of life itself. Um, so when kids get into college, get into the lecture hall, uh, there are those people in college faculties who basically hate God and love to bash Christians and consider it quite a high sport to uh, see if they can destroy everybody's faith in the first semester. So, having watched this process go on, and having been in a place where young people would come, parents would be interested, they'd send them off to the university, and, uh, and then watch their young people, not all of them, but many of them, really get hurt spiritually on the college campus. So, that's why we started approaching the scripture this way. 
And what I found out was when people were taught this way, uh, not only were they able to defend their faith in the classroom, they were actually able to engage the uh, uh, attacks in such a fashion that people didn't attack them again. So it, it turned out to be a successful approach. So that's why we have looked at the Bible through, the, through a series of events and we have associated doctrines, the great orthodox truths, with those events. And the reason for that is, is if you associate doctrines with events, that if anybody tries to mess with the events, you know intuitively and immediately that they're going to mess with the doctrine that is associated with those events. So, for example, if people mess around with creation, then you know automatically they are going to affect the doctrines of God, man, and nature. You can't have messing around with creation and not affect your view of what God is, who God is, what man is, and the idea of nature. So that's the idea. You protect biblical truth by embedding it in a framework of history. So then we went on to the... This is years ago. We started... The second event we did was the fall. And again, I'm going to redo all these slides. Uh, evil and suffering. So if you learn that, and you learn that connection, then when there's a problem, like why did there was this horrendous automobile crash and some innocent baby die, and everybody's saying, why did this happen? It's an evil problem. So immediately the wheels should turn. Evil problem. What's that associated with? The fall of man. So why does evil exist? Because we have a fall of man. That's why. And there's a reason for evil. And it's not because God is a meanie. It's because God gave responsibility to man and man abused it. So whatsoever man sows, that's what he also reap. And we're reaping it corporately as a human race. So not an answer, by the way, that a lot of people like. But that's the answer that God gives, whether people like it or not. Then we went on and dealt with the flood and the flood of Noah. It wasn't somebody's bathtub that overflowed in the Mesopotamian floodplain. This was a global flood that covered all the high mountains and so on. It's a global catastrophe. And that picture of the flood is associated with a doctrinal truth. And that is judgment salvation. And it's very easy to get off in the toolies in theology over this and that and so forth, all the details. But if you will think in terms of the flood story, you automatically protect yourself theologically because it's easy to sit without even the Bible in front of you and visualize the flood of Noah. And when you think about the boat and you think about the fact that only the people that trusted the Lord and entered the boat were saved, and everybody else was killed, there you have a picture of judgment salvation. There was only one way of salvation. It wasn't two boats. It wasn't three boats. It wasn't life rafts. It was only one ark. Only one way of salvation. And again, what does this do? It sets up the idea of judgment salvation for you very neatly, very cleanly. So people always say, well, I think that's pretty narrow-minded to have only one way of salvation. That's always been the way. There's never been more than one way of salvation. So you start the precedent by these stories and by these events. Then when you find people who want to deny a global catastrophe in the past, in earth history, 
and you know that that event is connected with judgment salvation, that reveals the motive of the person that wants to reconstruct earth history. Why do people want to reconstruct earth history and make it into billions of years and so forth and have the effects of the fall all through the thing, all the way back? Why is that? It's to erase, or try to anyway, try to erase personal responsibility before our Creator. It's to erase responsibility for the fall. It's to try to make the world as safe as possible for sinning. It's to exclude the idea of an interfering God who will invade history and judge and save. And it's up to him, not us, to do the saving and judging work. So, because of that, we know there's an agenda behind all the intellectual difficulties that people have. There's a spiritual agenda, and the agenda must always be remembered. It is to reconstruct reality such that I can live comfortably and keep on sinning. To make the world as safe as possible for sinning. That is, eliminate consequences. So, then we went to the covenant, Noahic covenant. There's the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible. So, therefore, what does that do? By remembering the rainbow, everybody's seen a rainbow. We know from the scriptures what the rainbow is a picture of, the glory of God, because Ezekiel says that when Ezekiel saw the throne of God, he saw a bow around it, a circle. We only see half a bow, unless you're in an airplane. So, Ezekiel and John, in the book of Revelation, look to this bow as, as God's glory. Well, what God did, obviously, was construct the physics, the optical physics of raindrops and the regime of the atmosphere at the point after the flood, such that the bow phenomena would be visible. And he did that, he did that physical construction as a mirror of his own glory, so that when we see rain, rainbow, which you always, by the way, you look at the bow with your back to the sun, that way, that's the way you're going to see it. You're not going to see the bow toward the sun. You're going to see the bow in back of you. So, in the light of the sun, you see the bow. And it's an it's a easy-to-remember lesson that God contracts. The word covenant gets too religious. So, if you want to, eat, want to grab the original biblical force of that word, substitute for it in your own mind and notes, contract. If you'll substitute the word contract for covenant, you'll grab the picture as it originally was intended to be communicated. What's a contract? A contract has certain parties to the contract. In this case, God and man. Now, immediately, right here, right with this covenant, we understand something unique to the Scriptures, unique to the Bible, unique to biblical religion. Do you know? that all of the dozens of religions in the world, none of them, none of them have a contract between God and man. That is utterly unique to Scripture. W.F. Albright, Johns Hopkins, the father of Dean of American Biblical Archaeology, said that. He said in his book, Yahweh and the Gods of Canaan, that the Hebrews and the Hebrews alone are the only people who in history had ever made contracts with their God. Of course, we would say God made contracts with them. But here's what falls out of that simple idea of a contract. When you have a contract, mortgage on your house, loan on your car, uh, uh, equity loan, whatever it is, and you sit down and you sign a contract, let's think about what goes on. 
Why do we have contracts anyway? To bring stability into a relationship. It's a, it's a measuring stick so that we can tell whether party A and party B are doing their part in the relationship. Everybody sits down and agrees to a contract. Now, are contracts interpreted literally or allegorically? Wouldn't it be delightful if you could interpret your mortgage agreement allegorically? But we all know there's not a contract in any of our human experience that is interpreted any other way than literally. Now, what does that tell you about interpreting the Bible? And it tells you the Bible is meant to be interpreted. What is the name of the Bible, by the way? The Old Testament. Testament is a contract. The New Testament. The Testament is a contract. So right away, the name of the Bible tells you you've got two contracts. So the first time the word contract occurs in the movement of history is right here. God made a covenant with Noah and he promised certain things. So now in ensuing history, it's a testing ground. Does God keep the literal words to Noah or not? Because if he doesn't, if, for example, the flood was a local flood, we've had lots of local floods since then. Norfolk just had theirs. So, if, if the Bible's talking about a once and for all local flood and there won't be another one like it, God's already broken his contract hundreds and hundreds of times. The Bible is predicting a global flood, says a global flood, and says it'll never happen again. Now, that has implications physics-wise in the fact that in order to maintain the contract, think about it, in order to maintain the contract, what does God have to control? The physics of motion of the planet, the solar system, but he can't control the solar system unless he controls cosmic forces on the solar system. So you can go out and keep on expanding it. God can't make a contract unless God can control all things. If God cannot control all things, he can control nothing. So that was the, the foundation. And that's the foundation of the rest of the Bible. That's the foundation you get in Genesis 1 to 11 that nobody studies seriously. And Christian colleges who are liberal always manage to deny, allegorize, and get rid of, and then wonder why we don't have a foundation for the faith anymore. Then after that, we come to the heart of the Old Testament. And we have some more events here. And these events, again, are easy to remember. A child can remember these stories. Don't have to be a theologian to remember these. And I'll, again, I'm going to make these slides so you can read them. But we have doctrines associated with each one of these events. That's not your glasses, by the way, if you can't focus it. That's the ink on the slides getting bad. Um, first one, Call of Abraham. Now, associated with that event of the call of Abraham are three doctrines. Election, justification, and faith. Now, everybody has this, this inherent, um, and I guess it's endemic, particularly to Americans, uh, this endemic reluctance to deal with the fact that God chooses how he wants to work without consulting Congress. That he has no consultants available. That he ultimately chooses what he wants to do in history. And as a result of that, he chose one man, Abraham, the first Jew. Here's the rise of the basis of anti-Semitism. The reason for anti-Semitism in the world, whether it's Hitler, Arafat, or whoever, the reason for it is, is a hatred for the fact that God runs history his way. 
And so when God called Abraham, this has profound implications with regard to comparative religions. What it means is, there is only one valid religion in the world, and that's the religion of the Bible. And the reason, and this is important because here's why you want to remember the story. People say, well, I think that's pretty unfair to only have one religion. That's not being inclusive. Well, God tried the inclusive approach with Noah and his sons. And what happened? You had the total paganization of early civilization. That's why when you go back into, whether it's the people in Southeast Asia or on the mission field, you always go back in the tribal motifs. And if they have a good history in those tribes and those people groups, eventually if you dig down, dig down, dig down, go back, 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 and try to get back as far as you can, in most tribes, they will tell you that long time ago, their forefathers worshipped this God who subsequently disappeared. And since he's gone, and the, the uh, God absconded us, he, he, he went away. Since he went away, we have had to worship the powers and principalities and the demons and so forth and so on. And you have polytheism coming out of this early monotheism. So that's the story throughout the world, and that's the story of the remembrance of the fact that Noah brought Genesis 1 to 11 to every people's group on earth. There is no such thing as a people group today that live in the world who can't be traced back to the sons of Noah. And since they can be traced back to the sons of Noah, it means at one time that, lineage, that line had access to biblical revelation of at least the extent of Genesis 1 to 11. So that being the case, it's not correct to argue that there are people groups who in their past didn't hear until the white man came along. They heard centuries before the white man. They heard centuries before the gospel even was announced through Jesus Christ. They had lots of revelation available. The problem is, because of sin, they suppressed that revelation and there was no way then, under that dispensation and, and economy, for God to deal with it other than in an interventionary mode. So God intervened, and he intervened because he elected the, this man, Abraham, the first Jew, to be the pioneer of a divine counterculture. So from this time forward, history will always be split. History will be split in a conflict between the Shemite descendants of Abraham and the Gentiles at large. It won't go away. It was going to continue all the way to the return of Jesus Christ. There is an inherent problem with the Jew and with what he has brought into history. And that problem goes back to God. God wanted it that way. Justification and faith, Abraham wasn't saved by keeping the law. Why wasn't he? Look at the chart. Law wasn't around. How could Abraham be saved by keeping the law? Law wasn't given until Moses. So, Abraham was saved by justification. See how easy it is if you just line this up and learn to associate the doctrine with these events. It, it just, the theology just rolls out once you get the events. Of course, you can't get the events. You don't read the Bible. And very few people read the Bible seriously. Then we come to the Exodus. What's the Exodus teach? Sub, uh, judgment, salvation. Same thing as Noah's flood, except the Exodus does what? That the flood didn't do. 
the Exodus introduces another theme to judgment salvation, and that is blood atonement. But like the ark, how many ways were there for people to be saved on the night of the Exodus, on the night of the Passover? Only one. Didn't matter whether he's an Egyptian, a Jew, male, female, child, or grandparent. The only way was blood on the door. Period. No discussion. No vote. No, well, I think it ought to be this way. Only one way. God's way. And that was by blood atonement. It wasn't by good works. They didn't hand a little trinket out in the mailbox and say, my, my, you know, I got 1,242 brownie points. Hope you pass me by. None of that stuff. Just blood on the doorpost. So that's the Exodus. Then after the Exodus, we come to Mount Sinai, and what happens here? God reveals the law. Now look at the sequence. When did the Jews get the law? Before the Exodus or after the Exodus? After the Exodus. So they couldn't have been delivered from Egypt by the law either. The law is not a means of salvation. You can see it in the outline of history. What happened at Mount Sinai was, and we associate three ideas of the Bible with that, revelation, inspiration, and canonicity. Revelation means, very important because this is denied, it's this doctrine, folks, that lies at the heart of why liberal clergymen do what they do. On Mount Sinai, if you can visualize this, here's... You know, you've seen Charlton Heston. Probably disappointed Moses doesn't look like Charlton Heston and Pharaoh doesn't look like Yul Brynner. But, point is that if you can visualize Mount Sinai with God speaking, and Cecil DeMille did an excellent job, by the way, long before computer animation with showing the supernaturalness of God speaking on Mount Sinai. Did it with cartooning, by the way. That was all done with Cecil Dean DeMille's sister taught many years cinema at... UCLA, and I had a friend of mine who took a course with Cecil DeMille's sister, and he said, Cecil DeMille hired thousands of people, did nothing but cartoons. Those were drawn by hand. So all the sequences had to be done by hand in those days because they had no computer animation. Anyway, that was the way Cecil DeMille had of making the, the Sinai events supernatural. You know, the fire came down, God wrote, his, wrote the Ten Commandments on, on the rock. Now, and he spoke, because in the movie, you could hear the voice of God. Now, here's the thing to remember about biblical revelation. Get this down. The Bible claims God speaks publicly. Now, he can speak privately. But no one outside of the scriptures believes in a God who speaks publicly. Publicly, such that if you were there with a tape recorder, you could have tape recorded his voice. Now, that's a question. If you ever get in a discussion with somebody and it's, it's squishy and you can't get a feeling, one of the questions you could ask to clarify where this person is at is, do you think that God speaks such that on Mount Sinai, if you were there with your video cam, could you have recorded it and play it back to me? Do you believe that? Now, if they don't, we've got a problem with the doctrine of revelation. If they do, they shouldn't have any problem with the Bible. Because if God can speak publicly in Hebrew language, 
in the 14th century before Christ, then he can speak any time in history. And then we don't have any problems with language and theology and the philosophy of linguistics. All that's solved because God can speak publicly in a known human language. It's not a spooky language. It's the language of Moses. He can speak in other languages too, Pentecost being a good example. Then we come to conquest and settlement. This is the bloody conquest of what is now Palestine. I have picked up propaganda over the years from the Arab countries in which they just get on this one and ride it. See those Jews, how nasty they were. I mean, you can even read it in the Bible. They came in and they slaughtered the Palestinians. That's right. Why? What was the conquest and settlement all about? God gave the land to the Jews. Didn't run it by the UN. He gave it to the Jews. And furthermore, he waited to give it to the Jews until what had happened? What did he tell Abraham to wait? It would be 400 years or so before all this would take place. Because the iniquity of the Palestinian occupants had to become full. In other words, a civilization had to tube out completely, gross out spiritually. And so the conquest is an invasion of a group of people who had to be eliminated from human history lest they would have corrupted the rest of the human race. In fact, the people associated with those people, the people associated with the Canaanites, by the way, they're white, not black. They were white inhabitants of Palestine. They're associates of the Phoenicians who are associated in history with the Carthaginians who were so gross the Romans couldn't stand them. So this went on for centuries. These people just have a propensity to get involved in all the filth of the world. Now, that's not to say that we don't. That's simply to say they're specialists. They take things all away. So that's a group of people God conquered it. But what do you suppose conquest and settlement pictures? Why do devotional writers down through the centuries of church history, where do they go for their stories for inspiration for devotionals? Joshua, the conquest. Why? Because it's war. War in a, far, in, a, in a fallen world where there's opposition, there's enemies, there's, peop, there's powers that have to be displaced. And we're going to get into that with the ascension of Christ. These were physical people that had to be displaced. In the church age, it's spiritual principalities and powers that have to be displaced. And so we come down to the rise and the reign of David. So now we come to the to the introduction of the monarchy in the Old Testament. And with the introduction of the monarchy, we have a new thing happen. Now we have an office, a position in society that is going to become a vehicle for revealing the nature of Jesus Christ. But that monarchy came about in a crazy way. Because if you think about the settlement, it never was finished, right? You go from Joshua to what's the next book after Joshua? Judges. And what's the theme of Judges? Everybody did what is right in their own eyes. Total collapse. Now, Judges, now here's where you want to connect the Bible with the big ideas all around you. In political theory, 
democracy assumes that the majority is always right or most of the time is right. Right? Assumption of democracy. What does the book of Judges say about democracy? What does it imply? It implies that the majority aren't always right. In fact, the vast majority can be absolutely wrong. So, the book of Judges is a refutation of the political idea of a democracy. Democracy is, you know, it's approximate, but it's not the way to be saved. Democracy isn't going to save anyone. We've learned that as we tried to impose democracy on third world nations, and it never works because they don't have the foundation we had in Massachusetts and the Bay Colony and so forth, namely a group of Christians made it work. Well, after you leave the book of Judges, now what do you come to in the Bible? You come to Samuel and Kings. And what is Samuel and Kings talking about? This new office, the monarchy. And after you get through reading all of Samuel and all of Kings, what is your impression of the monarchy? It doesn't work either. So now what we have is a refutation of a democracy and we have a simultaneous refutation of totalitarian government. The greatest political document in the Bible, by the way, is Samuel's speech in 1 Samuel 8. That ought to be taught in every political science course because it's a warning of what happens when you entrust a few with power over the all. So here you have a simultaneous undermining of the idea of democracy and a simultaneous uh, undermining of the idea of a totalitarian state. So both fascism and anarchism and all the rest of it just go down the drain. Marxism and everything with it. This is powerful stuff, folks. And the tragedy is we don't think enough about these stories to draw out the conclusions we should be drawing out. And with the result, the world in-runs us and turns us into blubbering idiots uh, that are somehow excluded off to the periphery of society. Now we come to the end of the Old Testament. We'll go through these pretty rapidly. This is toward the end of the Bible. You have deterioration. You have the golden era of Solomon. Again, looking at sanctification. What does the golden era of Solomon teach us, by the way, apart from the corruption, on the positive side? What books of the Bible were written by the David-Solomon group, that whole group of men and the men that surrounded him? The parts we go to all the time. Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. Song of Songs, the wisdom literature, all came out of this period of time. What does that tell you? Think about it. What are the subjects in the book of Proverbs? What aren't the subjects in the book of Proverbs? Marriage, family, personal relationships, uh, lessons from nature. What are some of the money? All these, the whole realm of life is discussed in wisdom. So what does that tell you? It tells you that when you have even in this approximate Old Testament version of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God concerns every sphere of life. Economics, personal relationships, so forth and so on. It's not excluded to a little corner in the back closet called the religious corner. It encompasses every area of life. Then we have the kingdom divided, the kingdoms in decline, and the exile. All this again, sanctification. And what does it show? Now, this is a very important lesson, too. If people would just grasp this, they wouldn't have a problem with eternal security. Now, I'm going to say this several times. You'll hear me in, in this fall as we go through this. 
when the Protestant Reformation made the big breakthrough and Luther and Calvin argued that you are holy and completely justified in one package deal at the time that you believe in Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church threw a fit. Their argument against the Protestants was this one. And by the way, this Roman Catholic argument appears in our own evangelical churches right now. The Roman Catholic argument was that you can't preach justification by faith alone without encouraging licentious living. You ever hear that argument? Don't teach eternal security now because that's an excuse for people to go out and raise hell. See? Because they're saved. They can do anything. Now, the Protestants, sadly, in the second and third generation, did a little tap dance around this one. Instead of going back to the Scriptures and grabbing the necessary doctrines that would have protected a justification by faith gospel, they kind of approach. And what they said was, well, if uh, so-and-so professes to be a believer and doesn't have any fruit in their life, uh, they, never got, they never believed. Well, there's a grain of truth to that. But here's where it's wrong. What it led to was what you will find if you study Puritanism. Five, six hundred page books to tell whether you're saved or not. How do you tell whether you're saved? Fruit inspection. Well, I'm sorry, but if you examine your fruit, you've got a lot of rotten stuff. I have a lot of rotten stuff. We all have rotten fruit. That's what drove Luther to Christ. As a priest, he did do a fruit inspection of his heart, and he found it was desperately wicked and deceitful. So he looked around for then, if my heart, even if the Holy Spirit works in my heart, it's never a finished work, it's always sin. So if that's the base of my salvation, I never can tell I'm saved. And so what happens here is philosophically, you wind up with something called empiricism and you have an empirical approach to the Christian life where everything depends on the last five minutes whether I've produced any fruit or not. And the ultimate conclusion is I can never know whether I'm elect or not until the final judgment. Because you never know how much fruit's enough. Well, it was a stupid thing, and, and frankly, I think Roman Catholicism won the day here. When they went back against the Protestants, the Protestants pulled this retreat business that they've been retreating ever since and have not given a clear picture. And that's why even today we have evangelicals going along with Roman Catholicism and saying, oh, there's no difference. Because Roman Catholics will use the word justified by faith, except they mean something different. They mean by justification what you and I would mean by sanctification. They're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in here. And so they say, yeah, you're justified by faith. You walk by faith and the Holy Spirit does things in here. Excuse me, but that's not the basis of salvation. What's the basis of salvation? What God, what Jesus Christ has presented to the Father up there. And that's what Luther said. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on Christ where he's ascended at the Father's right hand. That's your security. Well, you say, but doesn't that lead to licentious living? Aren't the Roman Catholics right in arguing against Protestantism on this point, that Protestantism unleashes 
licentious living. Okay, before I get to the answer, right from this chart, some of you who look at the chart should see the answer. But let me point out something. If the salvation package is, as Luther and Calvin said it was, as Paul says it is in Romans 5, Romans 3, if that's the case, what is the motivation in living the Christian life? Gratitude or fear? Gratitude. If I can't tell whether I'm saved or not, what is the motivation? Fear. And that's it, folks. Choose one or the other. Either the motive that drives the Christian life is gratitude, or the motive that drives the Christian life is fear. And if it's fear, then go to Rome, because that's where you belong. Gratitude is the Protestant gospel. Okay. Now, that, there's a protection device that sadly the Reformers didn't bring up when all this was going on, and it's right here. What did God do with his elect nation? Did he permit his elect nation to sin? Well, he let them sin a little bit. And then what did he do? He beat their butt. Didn't he? He took care of them. And they suffered and suffered and suffered. Psalm 119, some scholars believe, was written on the road of the captives. When that's Psalm 119, every verse is reading about the word, if I hid my heart and so forth, and go on and on and on and on. They're talking about people that were in POWs walking along with the Assyrians and the Babylonian soldiers, beating them and killing them when they fell by the wayside. That's why the word of God was so precious to them. So, the Jew, down through history, has suffered and suffered and suffered to the point where many of the modern Jews today hate God. They are secular Jews. They don't want to be any. They, they don't even want to be identified as Jews. They have sought over the centuries in Europe to hide themselves. And every time the Jew seeks to amalgamate himself with the Gentile culture, whether it was in France, then all of a sudden you have the Dreyfus trial. Army captain. French army. He's accused. He's a Jew. And the French go after him. And the Jews are sitting in the, in the courtroom watching the Dreyfus trial. And there's a guy in the back. You know who he is? He's Herzl. He's the guy that says, that's enough. There's no home for the Jew any longer in Europe. We need a homeland. And thus was born Zionism. So, the modern Zionist state is the result of the Jews suffering in every country on earth, having no place to go except to his homeland. And he can't even go there without getting blown up. So, this, this thing is a very sobering thing. But on the other hand, you say, oh, isn't that fear? Well, but it's fear of a different kind. It's a fear in the sense that God is not releasing them. It's not God throwing the Jew out. That's some Reformed theology. Amillennialism. It's rather that God holds on to the Jew and that's why he keeps on suffering. That idea is brought over into Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, if you be without what? If you be without chastisement, you are bastards. You are not legitimate children of God. You're phonies, he says, if you don't have discipline in the life. Then we all know that. We suffer. What sort of man sows it, you also reap. And it's a sign of ownership. The reason God is doing that 
is because he wants to get us in shape for eternity. And he's going to get us in shape. And he's going to do it the easy way or the hard way. But he will do it. I often use the illustration of the drill sergeant. In six weeks, you will be trained. Now, we all know what that means. Some of us know at least what that means and what it doesn't mean. But that little glint in that, that drill sergeant's eyes is, yeah, in six weeks, you're going to be in shape. I'll see to that. And you kind of get the idea that he means what he says. And it can be easy or it can be rough. But it will happen. And that's the way God runs the ship. So that's what the whole Old Testament restoration. The restoration is that he still loves Israel. And he still has a claim upon her and he will bring her back. Then we came down a year or so ago. We moved on to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is a subject that demands a lot of concentration and biblical knowledge. Just thinking of Jesus in sentimental terms doesn't cut it. Jesus wasn't revealed until after the Old Testament. Now, you look at your Bible and you see how much of your Bible is Old Testament and how much of it is New Testament. Now, think about it. The Holy Spirit did not bring Jesus onto the scene until after all that Old Testament revelation had occurred. Does that tell you something? Yes, it does. It tells me that I have to know a lot of stuff to appreciate who Jesus Christ really is and to understand His work on my behalf and your behalf. So, we divided the life of Christ up actually into four parts, four events, and did the same thing we did in the Old Testament. We associated certain key doctrines with certain parts of Christ's life. So we dealt with the birth of Christ. Jesus Christ was virgin born. Jesus Christ had a miraculous conception and birth. And that miraculous conception and birth is associated with something we call the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union says Jesus Christ is undiminished deity united with true humanity without confusion, in one person, forever. That's the doctrine of hypostatic union. Summarizes 400 years of discussion of the person of Jesus Christ. And every word in that sentence means something. Undiminished deity means it wasn't diminished in any way. Jesus didn't give up omnipotence. He didn't give up sovereignty. He didn't give up omnipresence. He didn't give up love and justice. Undiminished deity. United with true humanity. Jesus wasn't a, a, a human skeleton that God walked around in. He had a body, he had a soul, and he had a spirit just like you and I have. And that's important for th reasons we'll develop. So, hypostatic union. Jesus Christ is God-man. That's why Jesus Christ is better than Muhammad. Now, besides being a murderous pedophile, Muhammad cannot equal the person of Jesus Christ. No prophet, no religious leader, Buddha, put them all up against Jesus Christ and compare. Anybody, just do it, you know, and you can see the difference in the character of these people. So, Jesus Christ is God and man and he proves that God can dwell with people. 
And there's no thing like the liberal theologians say, oh, there's a big barrier between God and man and we can't really cross the barrier. We can't really know God. Well, then that would make Jesus a schizo. What does that say? Undiminished deity, united with true humanity, without confusion, didn't mess up the creator-creature distinction, in one person, not two, in one person forever. Then we have Jesus Christ's life. And we went through some, ver- some rather complicated doctrines here, which we'll just touch on in passing tonight. And that is kenosis, impeccability, and infallibility. Kenosis. What's that idea all about? The idea of kenosis comes from he- uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 8. He humbled himself. What do you mean he humbled himself? And theologians had to deal with that humbling. Does that mean he gave up kind of the use of his attributes? No. He gave up the voluntary use of his attributes. In other words, if Jesus were to encounter Satan, say, the trial. Remember, what, one, remember one of Satan's um, temptations of Jesus was, what did he say to Jesus when Jesus was hungry? Remember? Turn the, turn the stones into bread. Could Jesus in his omnipotence have done that? Yes. Jesus, however, would not exercise his omnipotence to turn stones into bread unless it was the Father's plan. So he could have gotten out of that one with a simple boom. Okay, Satan, I'll make enough bread so you'll be walking on it for the next thousand miles. But he didn't. Because it wasn't in the Father's plan for him to do that. So Jesus voluntarily said, yes, sir, and submitted to the Father. That's the kenosis. That's what it means. He gave up the involuntary, rather, excuse me, the involuntary use of his attribute in the sense that independent. The word independent is better. He gave up the independent use of his attributes. He had to get clearance from the Father before he could use any of his, his divine attributes. Why is that important? You say, is this nitpicky? Is this little theological stuff for you know, guys getting their doctorate? No, no. It's in, Hebrew, in Philippians 2. What's the context of Philippians 2? Local church. What's the problem Paul's dealing with when he brings in kenosis? Remember Paul? I teach today, he'd be so bent out of shape with the state of most churches. Because he probably didn't sing, didn't stroke a banjo, wouldn't sing 50 verses of something to entertain everyone before he got to the Word of God. What he did was deal with a mental attitude problem in the local church directly with his heavy stuff. You know why he used heavy stuff? Because life is heavy. You need strength to encounter the difficulties of life. Not pablum. You need something strong. It's the iron in the backbone. And so that's why he brings in heavy voltage here with kenosis, saying that if you can understand when you're frustrated that the Lord Jesus Christ had such humility that he was willing to endure what he endured all through his life when as God, he could have stopped it right there. And then think of how many times we get irritated. And Jesus, think of the the tension, the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ Every time, he, that's what humility is. See, humility doesn't mean weakness. Here's God here. He's not weak. He's obedient to an authority. He understands what authority is. 
another revolutionary concept for our culture. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the, to the first person of the Trinity. Okay? That's kenosis. Then we have impeccability, which has to do with the fact that Jesus Christ, as God, could not sin, but as man, he could sin. So, how do you fuse those two together? We had a big Q&A about that one. point there is that Jesus Christ was successful in genuinely encountering temptation. The temptations weren't fake theater. They weren't made up for TV kind of stuff. They were genuine temptations. And theologians have had a hard time getting into the understanding how the God-man could be genuinely tempted. That's what that doctrine is all about. Won't worry about that tonight. The last one, infallibility. The Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly infallible. He said, which of you convict me of sin? Can you name a religious leader that could dare say something like that? Go around and say, go ahead, pick a sin. No one in all of his lifetime ever accused him of sin in the sense that he was, he was questioning. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus Christ gave testimony of the Old Testament's validity. What is one of the commandments about witnessing? And it was used in the courtroom. Why in the courtroom today does the judge say to swear on the Bible? Of course, now it might be the Koran tomorrow, but the point is that you swear on something. Now, what is the point of swearing? Because the courtroom wants to be sure that we're getting the truth here. Now, what is it called when you don't tell the truth in a courtroom? Perjury. Okay. Can anyone think in the Ten Commandments, the one commandment that's against perjury? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Okay. Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ said something was true in the Old Testament and it wasn't, like a literal Adam, for example, he's committed perjury. I mean, you can't get around it. You can make all the excuses you want to about Jesus accommodating to the first century understanding. But ultimately, fabrication of history is perjury. You know why I can say that that strongly? Because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, says that if the Lord Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, if there's not such a thing as resurrection, and I said there is, then I have borne, and you look at the text, I have borne false witness. Paul was remembering the commandments. See, there's a moral reason for infallibility of Scripture. A moral reason, an ethical reason, underlying the philosophical reason of inerrant Scripture. Then we have the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the death of the Lord Jesus Christ iterates again substitutionary blood atonement. Christianity is a bloody mess. And it's unavoidable. And it's offensive to people. In the 20s and 30s, people got bent out, all bent out of shape with this substitutionary blood atonement thing. And when the liberalism came and took over most of the mainline denominations in the 20s and 30s, one of the things that they argued against the fundamentalists was that you fundamentalists have a slaughterhouse religion. That's what, that's what the gospel is called, slaughterhouse religion. Now, why do they call it slaughterhouse religion? Because of this. You see, the point is, in this Buddhist blood atonement, there are only two ways to take the cross of Jesus. One way, and both of these have been articulated through church history. One way follows Abelard. Abelard argued that the reason that Jesus went to the cross was to inspire us, 
dying nobly for a noble cause. In other words, the benefit of the cross is its subjective influence on your heart. Okay? Now, that's not denying that the cross has a sub, uh, you know, a subjective thing. But the subjective benefit isn't because he's a noble, dying for a noble cause. The subjective effect is another reason. Anselm. Anselm's argument was that the reason that Christ went to the cross was to resolve something between God and man, independently of whether we liked it, disliked it, was influenced by it or not influenced by it. Something objectively was done on the cross. And that's the satisfaction doctrine of the cross. So, those two ideas come all the way down today. Liberals will talk about the cross of Jesus and you'll sit there in the pew and think, oh, gee, this guy's good. But they're not talking about what you're talking about. Don't be misled by common vocabulary. What they mean by the cross of Christ is a martyr's inspiring act. Like the guys that bomb buses in Israel. And the mothers go clap, clap, and you get $25,000 from Saddam Hussein. It's an inspiring event. So all the little Arab kids can clap their hands and consider him to be a saint. And that's the way the cross is viewed in liberal theology. But that's not the way we view it. That's not the way the Bible views it. The Bible says that Jesus Christ didn't go there for movies. He's not selling something to Hollywood. Jesus goes to the cross in order to accomplish something for man's salvation. That's substitutionary blood atonement. Then we come to the most amazing thing of all, the resurrection. And the resurrection is the space-time invasion of the eternal universe. In other words, the eternal universe yet to come will be made up of the matter and material that Jesus' body is. Jesus' body, when he rose from the dead, is the first piece of the eternal universe to come that will replace this one. There's only one part of it now. It's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So, his resurrection body is an amazing thing. It also tells you that the universe forever and ever, the new universe, the heavens and the earth, were designed in a remarkable parallel to this world. And that the human body to come, the resurrection body to come, is going to be remarkable, similar to the bodies we have, without the aches and pains, of course. No health care system in the eternal state needed. So we have the resurrection body. Now we come to the first thing that we said last time, and we barely get there. That's okay. We're going to take our time. We come now to the next act in the grand drama, and that is the act of the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we present this, I remember many of you know the Apostles' Creed. You'll notice how much of the Apostles' Creed is dedicated to the ascension and session of Jesus. Look at all of it. It's in red. That's how much in the early church they devoted to the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. How much do you hear about it today? Ever hear a sermon on the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ? I've heard very, very few. I think one or two. 20 years, 30 years that I've listened. So, let's look at this. Here's the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty and Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, was crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell, the third day rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. In other words, he's been invested 
with authority of a position. Now, in our time remaining tonight, we will just introduce the location of where that ascension happened and point out to you that it has remarkable uh, parallels with the Old Testament. This little piece of real estate called Jerusalem is quite remarkable because things keep happening in the same places. There's a map of the temple in the Old Testament times and imposed on that is modern buildings that if you were to go there tonight, here's some of the buildings you'd see. The Intercontinental Hotel sitting right there on the top of the Mount of Ascension. Jesus didn't have the hotel. The disciples didn't either. They went over to a place here in this little crook in the road. See where the road comes like this? Okay. This is a valley here, the Kidron Valley. Over here is high ground, and on that high ground is the temple. Still there. Temple Mount's still there. Arabs think they own it. The Jews actually own it. But this is the place where Jesus Christ had the experiences he did in the Gospels. This is where the Shekinah glory dwelt in the Old Testament. Then across this valley is a ridge line that runs down this road. This road that you see here is right around the top of that ridge line. The whole thing is known as the Mount of Olives. It's also known as the Mount of Ascent because both of them are there. On this side is where the olive grove was, where Jesus was arrested and taken for his trial. Around the bend is a little place called Bethany. Now, I don't have the scale of miles on here, but this is probably only a mile or two. Now, in the Gospels, how many times does he spend the night at Mary and Martha's? You get the impression that he did it quite a bit. Well, now you can see why. He just went out of the city, went around the place, and stopped off over here, the convenient stopping place. Well, we must get into the text at least for a minute and a half before we uh, go on. So let's turn to the end of Luke, the last few verses in Luke. I want to visualize this as an event. This happened. If you were there with a movie camera, you could have taken the picture. Luke, chapter 24, verse 50. Okay? Luke says, if you look at the text in verse 50, He led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up His hands and He blessed them. And it came about that while He was blessing them, He parted from them. They turned and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, flip over to Acts chapter 1, because that's where we're going to start next time. And if you look at verse 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 1, which is also the same author as Luke. So, same guy did both volumes. In Luke chapter 1, as they were gazing... Oh, wait, after he said these things, verse 9. After he said these things, he was lifted up. Notice his passive voice. He was lifted up while they were looking on and the cloud received them out of their sight. Now, as a meteorologist, I've often wondered what the cloud looked like. However, interesting thing. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, which was the presence of God, was physically appearing as a cloud. In the book of Ezekiel, guess where the Shekinah glory departed the earth? Chapter 8, chapter 10... 
prophets and the other chapters of Ezekiel trace as Ezekiel in his vision watches the Shekinah glory because all the corruption, all the pollution, Shekinah glory leaves the temple, comes up to the temple wall, goes across the valley, goes up the mountain east of Jerusalem and goes into heaven. Now, isn't that interesting? The exact place where the Old Testament Shekinah glory departed into heaven is the exact place the Lord Jesus Christ also ascended to heaven because he was there. Shekinah glory is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He'd done that once before. So here he does it again, this time as the God-man. And the cloud receives him up out of their sight. And verse 10 adds a little footnote to this. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing. Notice it took some time. So Jesus isn't just disappearing like he used to on the road to Emmaus or in the room. You know, he, he pulled this appearance, disappearance, boom, boom. Here, it's not like that. If you look at the text, Jesus is actually leaving them physically motion, going up. Now, how far up he went, we don't know, except for the fact that in verse 10, it says they gazed intently, which suggests they were squinting, they were concentrating on this, watching this happen. So it must have taken some time for this to, to occur. He didn't just go boom. It's, he gradually withdrew. Now, whether it was a big hole in the sky or what it was, we don't know. I'll get into a little bit of suggestion uh, next week when we come back. But anyway, verse 10, two men in white clothing stood beside them and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watch him go into heaven. Now, what does that mean? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ is physically in his resurrection body going to appear and descend to the earth. Talk about being a picture, a story. How about that one? And all these people say, well, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, hang around a little. Watch what happens in the next chapter. So, here he comes and he's going to come back physically, not in, in subjectively, but actually in physically. So, what does that look like? We're going to close tonight with a photograph. Well, two things I want to show you before we end the class tonight. One is a picture, a uh, little bit, if you can see it. You see this, this is kind of a fuzzy photograph, but it's kept from a slide. But um, here is the road that's down the Kidron Valley. You're looking from the temple across the Kidron Valley at the Mount of Ascension. You can see it's not much of a mountain. Uh, it's all bare over there. That's because on the other side of the green line, this is how the Palestinians handle the land. They just leave it that way. Um, it's the Jews that put all the olive groves up and try to grow something on the land. You know, most lands for growing things. They like to look at rocks. So, um, here's the Mount of Ascension. And somewhere along that ridgeline, on the other side of this, is Bethany. So, somewhere along there, the disciples were there watching this whole thing take off. So, I wanted you to, to visualize it as a place. In the Middle Ages... Artists sometimes painted pictures. And I'm going to come back to this one next time. But this, this is a medieval type of art form. And, and I'm not an art historian. And I don't particularly care for medieval art. But it tends to be a theological poster. If you can think of it as a poster. Do you notice something about that picture? Think of the story you just read in the text. How many men were talking to the disciples? Two. You see the two down there? Here are the disciples. There are the two. 
Jesus is ascending. Now notice something else that the artist put in this picture. How, when he painted Jesus ascending, did he paint him such that he conveyed to the viewer of this painting the truth that in the New Testament he rose again far above the principalities and powers? Do you see what the artist tried to do here to get that idea across? There's the angelic being. And on this, on this painting, what the art, he drew Jesus piercing that, that level. So Jesus' head here is higher than the heads of the angels. And he has them ascending through the domain of the angelic beings. And that we'll come back to because that's a critical truth of the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus. Okay, we're going to close the class now. And for those who have to leave, fine. And uh, we'll have some 15 minutes or so of Q&A afterwards. Father, we thank You for our time together tonight. We thank You that You have given us, through the Scriptures, a complete, inerrant record of Your dealings with man and our environment. We thank You that through salvation we can come to know You. Through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can grow in strength and wisdom. That in Your grace, You're always there to deal with our falls, with our sins. We pray tonight that You would open our hearts further to the truths of the Word of God and come to appreciate our Lord Jesus Christ in a deeper and stronger and better way. Amen. Okay, um, we have... I guess 10 minutes or so we can um, do some Q&A if you would like to. I'm so glad, Debbie, that you are here. I don't know how we could get Q&A if Debbie weren't here to start it. And when she's not here, Donna will do her best to start it. Okay, go ahead, Debbie. Okay, good question. Uh, Debbie has asked the question of, if you go back to the call of Abraham, God promised that Abraham not only would be father of a great nation, that is, father of Israel, but he would also be father of many nations. So where does that put the many nations in the covenant? And that answer comes by watching the narrative of succession in Genesis. That's the significance of the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob sequence because when God is identified after that period in history he goes by that name doesn't he how often do you hear that name the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob in fact even Jesus refers to that and there you have the delineation of the domain of the covenant of salvation the redemptive covenants coming through Abraham it doesn't go to all of his physical seed he goes through that line and so it's a restricted subset of all of his progeny. 
That's not to say that the progeny can't, as individuals, be saved now. We're just saying that as the, the, the identifiable nation, the great nation, is the one through whom God will bring Christ, it's through whom God will reveal the Scriptures, and it's through whom that God will bring world peace finally in the setting up of the kingdom. So, God has that instrument confined to those who come out of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob line. But there are other nations. I mean, a lot of, I mean, it's, uh, uh, I have a friend that I work with a lot who I'm not sure is a Christian, and he recently saw a um, um, film on, on the Middle East. And, uh, no, no, he went up to um, Lancaster and saw the, um, what's your theater? Sight and Sound, and uh, the story of Abraham. And uh, came back and said, well, gosh, you know, they talked all about uh, Isaac and Ishmael and, and Jacob and Esau. And he says, sounds to me like that's still going on. We've been commenting about it. And uh, he says, that's right. That's, that's the problem. Isaac and Ishmael still going at it. They're both out of Abraham. So the modern Arab-Palestinian person could well be Semitic. Uh, you can't really accuse them technically of anti-Semitism because they themselves, many of them are Semites themselves. Uh, it's just that there's a, the Shemites that are closest to the Jew are actually the ones most hostile. If you think about it in Scripture, the, uh, the Moabites, um, they, they were always turning against the legitimate Jew. And so the anger and the hostility and the depth of opposition that just is appalling in our day because we see the suicide kids and the, the training that the families go through and mama thinks her 16-year-old son was a great hero because he blew everybody up on a bus. Uh, you wonder, what is going on? What is going on is the same thing that's been going on for centuries. It's just that in the TV and the media today, we kind of get it in our face and we haven't been getting it, you know, till the last few years. But it's been there fomenting all along. And what you're seeing is the anger and the animosity that you read about in the Old Testament. So, the, the Abraham is father of a lot of nations. And, and, and tragically, uh, he shouldn't have been father of some of them. So, again, it goes back to the fact that God does tend sometimes to take our disobedience and the fruit of our disobedience, and it's embarrassing and humiliating to get it in our face. But he sometimes will do that. He'll just keep... You know, you want it to go away. You want the consequence of your sin to go away. And for some reason, he'll take a piece of it or a chunk of it and he'll just keep stabbing you with it, kind of. And it's, it's just to remind us that what's there we, you know, so that shall we also reap. And that's his method. Fortunately, it, you know, to be asked by his face to face with the Lord, it's all over. So it's not eternal. Well, that's Abraham and the nations. Any other um, questions or topics? Yes. Um, in creation, uh, story of the serpent. Do you think that literal, as it was really a serpent, or do you think it was a uh, representation of Satan? Okay. The question is: In creation story. Uh, is is the story of the serpent meant to be taken literally, or is it the, the serpent actually a literary um, uh, or a figurative picture of Satan? I think the way to answer that is first of all in the text, 
what we call a snake, uh, the serpentine kind of thing, is what the serpent looked like after the curse. Because remember what God said in the curse? You'll crawl around on your face. So evidently, what we call the herpentine uh, thing is, is an abnormal version of what originally was there. Now, what originally was there, we don't know what it looked like, but we know what it looks like now. Now, let's talk about correspondence between forms. I take that as a literal entity that Satan uh, spoke somehow. Um, he, he had evidently the power to perhaps take upon him some animal being, body. Uh, shouldn't be astounding, actually, when you consider the demons took over swine in the Gospels. Uh, Angel of the Lord took over uh, a jackass uh, to Balaam. So, animals that have a centrally have a developed central nervous system beyond a certain state apparently are biologically and physiologically capable of sustaining uh, an indwelling spirit of some sort. But as far as correspondence, I think there's a good point raised in this question. What about, apart from the literalness, yeah, okay, it's literal, but what's the correspondence between animal forms and angelic powers. Now, if you look in the book of Revelation and you look at the throne of God, the angels have animal parts to them. And what's remarkable about this is, and Old Testament scholars have commented on this, is that in the ancient world, the gods and goddesses were often pictured zoomorphically. In the Old Testament, what did God insist to his people? that they never do. No image of me. And they, they, there was this, always this tendency. The Jews, I mean, Aaron, for crying out loud, you know, I mean, Moses up on the mountain, he's already doing a graven image. It was just inherent that they had to have a biological, zoomorphic, human, humanoid form of God to visualize him. And God refused to allow that. Um, so, what then do we do with zoomorphic forms. I think from the revelation that you see in the Bible, the what we call incorporeal animals, the incorporeal angels rather, have some sort of corporeal form when, they, when, they, when we're seeing them. And the forms they have and have had for all history correspond to what we see in the human and, and animal form. So, Satan, to get back to the question, I believe that the biological form, the physiological zoomorphical form of the serpent today corresponds to what Satan would look like if we could see him, one of his forms. He evidently can transmute because he can appear as a person, he can appear as a, as a thing, but it's a serpentine. There's something that God wants us to see in the serpentine animal form that is revelatory of Satan. This occurs in the book of Judges. Uh, there's a, the satanic image of Egypt is called the Leviathan. In the Leviathan, we don't know what Leviathan is. Some people think it was kind of like a dinosaur reptilian form again uh, that appears in the book of Job. But why is there this constant 
theme through Scripture of a reptilian type energy with, with Satan. I don't know. It just seems to be there. So you conclude that every part of creation is revelatory of God in some respect. So it must be that the reptilian form has some, some correspondence with Satan. I don't believe, in other words, and this is one of the things where we would differ as creationists from an evolutionist. The evolutionist views animal forms, by the way, as um, sort of almost biological accidents born of natural selection. And we view animal forms as revelatory. A uh, great example of this is when I was, lived in Texas, I knew someone who raised sheep. In fact, here, your dad. Um, people who raise sheep can tell you all kinds of stories about the weird behavior of sheep and how helpless they are. And these animals couldn't exist without a man. They fall over and they get gas. And it takes a human being to put them up. Or they bloat and die. And they're, they're amazing. So, that animal called a lamb or a sheep, is designed biologically to reveal things. That form is not a cat, it's not a dog, it's a sheep. And the reason it looks the way it does and acts the way it does is because God said, I want an animal that does those things, that looks that way, because I'm using that animal as a prop to teach my people. So, that's why, to me, the, another manifestation of this is how can somebody be ever bored living in this world with all the revelatory chunks and pieces around us? And you, you can't be bored because every one of these things, if you think deeply enough about it, is revelatory. Why, for example, are dogs the way they are? There's something about the dog in the, in the wolf-fox form hostile to the land. And Gentiles are called dogs. Jesus called lady a dog once. Not very Christ-like, we would say, in our evangelical circles. But he referred to her as a dog. Why? Because there's something about the dog nature that is revelatory. Now, I know, we all like our dog pets. But, but there's something about that that's revelatory. And it's neat to see. And you see, if you approach things from an evolutionary point of view, you can't say anything like that because it's all biological accident. It's all statistical. It's nothing inherently logical or rational about it. Any, any other questions? Yes. Um, if animals can be uh, possessed by demons, does that mean they have souls like uh, the uh, question is about animals being uh, demonically controlled. Um, in the Hebrew, there's no distinction between nephesh, which is the word translated in English for soul, as it is used for animals and man. The, the distinction is not between the fact that animals have soul. The word soul, by the way, in the Hebrew is, is not um, a specialized thing. It's more like life. It's almost a synonym for life. Um, the distinction, if you go back to the creation narrative, is not that animals don't have life and we do or they have soul, we don't. The difference is that whatever our spirit soul is, it is made in God's image. Um, the famous 
church apologist, can't think of his name now, Tertullian, I guess it was, who had a meditation on the garden when God created man. And he said when God sat there and he worked the first man in the clay of the earth, he had in mind the incarnation. He made us in his image that he could become the God-man. That's why the human form is the way it is, not because it's evolved. It is designed from the very beginning to be a vehicle of the incarnation, the revelational. So animals uh, appear at times that they can be controlled and act as inhabitants. Uh, one of the interesting things is that capital punishment in the Mosaic Law Code was, and, and Noah was any animal that kills will be capitally punished. Along with any man. And, you know, what's that mean? It means something weird. Something's connected there. Um, I think our time is running out. Next week we'll start with the Ascension and go into some of the fallout of the Ascension and Pentecost, hopefully. So for the first few weeks, for those of you who came last year, it'll be reviewed, but I think it's, it's worthwhile to review.